the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my mommy and her friends on Trails and Testimonies. Come on, y'all. Let's go. Welcome to Trails and Testimonies. My name is Kim Fitz. You can follow me on Instagram or you can follow Trails and Testimonies on Facebook. Today's trail brought us to White Oak in Dallas, Georgia, in the middle of one of those summer storms to meet our new friend, Jessica. And on the way there, I thought, okay, so this is how the interview is going to go. But then I thought, what is a testimony without some storms? Jessica, thank you so much for driving through the storm Absolutely, and going through the storms. I did. Here. I was coming down the same road as you, and I didn't know if I was ahead of you or behind you, but um, I could see I was approaching the rain, and I, in the flesh, I said, let me stop and, and text her and see if we're really doing this, and then I just kept driving. You never make it through to the other side where the rainbows and the, the sunshine is without driving through it. Amen. So we, right. were, we were on the same page when we arrived in the monsoon. <laughs> we, both, we both arrived in the monsoon, yes. snuck into the pavilion, hung out for a bit, and now here we are. And, and a lot of your stormy testimony actually begins at the conception. Yes. Uh, my conception, of course, was not something that I even knew about until I was much older. The whole truth wouldn't really come out until I was an adult actively in recovery and, and pursuing God. But I do know that part of my story is I was conceived through uh, some childhood trauma, which that's my mom's story to tell. But my mom was 14 years old when she became pregnant with me. It was something that would rock her world and my grandparents' world. What seemed to be the best option, I know that abortion came into play at that time. But that was man's plan. Uh, whether it was the perception of being a solution that someone thought was the right fit at the right time, God would not see that to be part of my story. That did not take place, and my mother stepped into a motherhood role. She was then 15 when I was born. I would be born into a family, what would become my earthly father. He never legally adopted me, but I have his last name, and I've never known any other father, other than him and he was there for my birth and his family took me in and I was raised as an Evans and I didn't know any different for a very long time. So that last name is very powerful and important to you. Yes and I know now through a lot of healing that the next chapter of of that story that was playing out was that God was protecting me. God knew who I needed. God knew that Ross would be my father, that the Evans would be my family and what I perceived as rejection and abandonment was actually truly a divine protection. My biological father was not someone that I needed to know. At an older age, when I found who he was, um, that he had passed, I was gifted with a family. 
siblings. I have three half siblings and we're still in contact and we've explored building that relationship. And so part of that story, just recently as this Father's Day, I was able to write in my own feelings what forgiveness for him looks like. And it came to me after many years and I just summed it up the best way that the Bible says it is forgive them because they they just did not know. And, and it's so much easier when you read it and you say it, but then when you forgive them, that's it's hard. I mean, to tap into what Jesus was feeling in a moment of having to offer Judas forgiveness. On the cross. On the cross. Going through all that physical and mental pain. In that moment. Forgive them. I mean, no one else ever had more of an opportunity to be resentful and angry and right. unforgiving than Jesus did. And so... Through my walk, I was able, like I said, just a few weeks ago, I posted uh, what, what that forgiveness walk looks like for me. And that was, I know it wasn't my fault. And I never will get an apology from him. I'll never get an explanation from him. I never even met him. And I'm okay with that today. On Father's Day, sometimes it, it can be difficult for a lot of different families trying to stand there and pick out a card and look at some of that. But we know we are blessed with not only the ultimate father, but thankfully the ultimate father blessed you with a dad. Absolutely. And that healing started in when I first came into recovery in 2007. I heard a sermon one time by Jensen Franklin, and he was talking about the congressman was adopted, didn't have a father, you know, what they're referred to in the Bible. And his whole ministry was just learning who his real father was. And that's the first time that I'd heard that concept of God, Christ, being our true father. Proclaiming the forgiveness, it, it was all in, it, you know, the story was being written. When I think about forgiving other people, when I think about my mother and being 14 years old, I, I can't even be in her shoes. I never, no never way. was. Um, when I was 14, there was no way I could have But she gave that. it. I mean, she gave it. Right, a shot. I know without a doubt that then and now that my mom does, did, and and wants the very best for me because through all of our differences, through every single thing that I've been through and specifically put my mother through, she's never left my side. She set boundaries, but those boundaries saved my life. She hurt me, but that that pain was a lot of my own. When the pain, even from 1980, is part of your purpose, the reason yeah. that you're here, that that happened when she was 14. Yeah. Thank God that you're here and thank God that you can share the rest of your testimony. Yeah. And I, when I think about that, how selfless she was, I mean, she traded in childhood for motherhood. Every story is different. There's always a, a reason that someone doesn't know behind those choices but we just have to see God in it. When I minister with or pray with women that have or are considering abortion, all I can say is I thank God for stepping in on my behalf. Had it been for man's plan, then I know that we wouldn't be sitting here today. Exactly. I'm glad that you're here. Yes, me too. <laughs> and you even went through different parts of recovery in 2007 when you were 27. Yes. So May 20th, 2007 was my first original sobriety date. There was a, a long history, just sum it up in a good, a good 10 years of 
drinking alcoholically, abusing other substances, getting into a, a marriage that was toxic on both of our parts, being 18 and thinking I knew what marriage was or even what a relationship was, but I was just very lost. Well, I like the term that you used, ism. Mm-hmm. And you can relate ism back to so many things, including escapism. So my original sobriety date was, like I said, May 20th, 2017. And I would rededicate my life to Christ in August of that same year. And it would set me on a path. And I actually, of, of all the tattoos that I have, one of the most meaningful ones is the heart on my wrist that has ISM right above it. And ISM... It can be related to any ism, but it also stands for I, self, me. And the heart under it is is representative of God's heart. It's when I gave my life back to Christ and then stepping into recovery and realizing that I, self, me, I am my own problem. And when I am the problem, then there is a solution. And as long as I am seeking God's heart, you name it, you can attach an ism to it because there's so many symptoms of sin nature because we're flesh flesh. and so it's so easy to get that selfish mentality back and go to i self me and so when we remove that and we say no i don't need that i know where i actually come from and that's from god and that's from god so that's what the heart means and it's i put the ism right above the heart and it's you know just has representation to me that's when I gave my life back to Christ and just coming into the first realization of, man, I am my own worst enemy. I have to get out of my own way. I would go into recovery and my life would radically change. I would get sober. I would let God just work in my life. And I was building from the ground up, learning so much about myself. I was addressing mental health issues. I had my very first mental health diagnosis came, but I also know now that it was directly related to alcohol use. So I, I feel free from some of those diagnoses that I experienced in the very beginning because I, 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 not, I don't exhibit those symptoms because I'm, I'm not wrapped up in that ism. So um, I do feel free from that, but I part of my story is mental mental Ill, illness and addressing it and not running from it and not absorbing the stigma. I mean, there's such a stigma, especially with women and mothers, that we have to have it all together and it's just okay to not be okay and learning that. That was a huge step for me too, is um, learning who I really was in Christ and right from wrong and knowledge and awakenings that just took my life to a place that I never could have dreamed of so you will often hear people say in recovery I couldn't have dreamed up this you know what God had in store for me well it's so wild what God can create for us if we just let him just let him and then you go wow he did you did that Mm -hmm. and why am I shocked because look at what you've done in the past in the Bible I can read about it and you did all that yes so my recovery would have a chapter in it that would include relapse, which is very common. Everybody's recovery journey is different. Now, the awesome thing that you said to me and that other Christians have said to me mm-hmm. is like, we're all in recovery. I mean, we're all recovering from something. Mm-hmm. And so um, learning to not 
you know, separate myself from you just because I preferred alcohol doesn't mean that you don't know what it's like to have something controlling you. I realize now that it wasn't just the alcoholism. I was addicted to escaping. At a very early age, I learned that I didn't, if I did not like my environment, I could escape from it. And so that quote that I heard last week was, every human has a God-sized void in our hearts. Oh, that's so true. It so wrecked me. And I know that's not the exact quote. That's what jumped on my spirit when he said it. And, and then all I've been seeing, that was Friday when he said that. And all I've had since hearing that quote is just a vision of myself putting together this puzzle and literally trying to get pieces to fit into my heart that were never the right shaped. They were never God shaped. When that goes back to we're recovering every single day because we have that, that God sized void. So what do we fill it with? Fill it with, right. Right. And so we pick up the cross every single day. We recover from what? Every single day. Every single day. And you got to make sure that it's something positive. Yep. Definitely. So I can go back to, you know, many reasons, childhood trauma. But for me, what I speak to the most in my journey is, is generational curses. Things that were happening around me or to me that were passed down from generation to generation. And we just didn't know any better. That's self-forgiveness in itself. But it also brings forgiveness to the other people around me. So often addicts and alcoholics, we, I, I, I know that I have an issue with blame. I like it to be other people's fault. That feels very comfortable for me to not look in the mirror and blame someone else. And it really wasn't until I was able to start taking responsibility. You, I mean, I'm a firm believer that you do not recover until you, you get real with yourself. To get real with God and let him totally wreck you. But it takes saying, doesn't matter what anyone did to me at any point in time. This is what I did. Yes. This is where mm-hmm. I went to the left field. This is where I took the wrong turn. Mm-hmm. No one took me there but myself. I right. mean, the, obviously the stuff that, you know, when we're younger and it's out of our hands. But as an adult, I've made plenty of wrong choices and, and hurt a lot of people. That is my responsibility, living that amends every single day to my children, to my family, to myself. And so when you relapsed, you did lose your children and you had to go in front of a judge and you did um, talk to her. And what was her response to you? So I had eight and a half years sober. All the promises that you read about God's promises. I mean, it says in the Bible that you will have the fruit of the spirit, you will have these fruits, you will have these things, you will have peace, love, joy, kindness, all, all of that, that we all strive for. And so part of the promises is that you, you'll get a life beyond anything that you could ever imagine. And I was living the promises. Literally, I was married. We had two children. Like I jokingly say, we had a white picket fence, but we literally did around the front porch, <laughs> a lake home, the job. It was all surface level. I mean, and I was seeking God, but again, I know now after going through that storm, I can see that where I was missing the mark, there were still bondages taking place and there were still things that were distracting me and I was still hiding sin and I still wasn't willing to heal in these places. When I realized that I could not keep 
my husband at the time sober. He was fighting his own battle. He was in his own recovery. I, I'll say that I had two years sober when I met him, and he had about two days. Mm. And why I didn't listen and why he didn't listen, because we thought we knew what we needed or wanted. Before long, I know now I was in a marriage with someone that I was fully unequally yoked with, and I didn't know what that meant. But it's given me forgiveness for myself and for him for that failed marriage because we both are good people, but we weren't in God's will. And I was battling postpartum. I remember the night, it was just a domino effect, and it started with taking prescribed medication, taking prescribed Xanax. That's what the doctor prescribed for my postpartum. And I should have said I'm in recovery and I have an addictive nature, but I was already in the spirit of escapism. I wanted a way out. I didn't want to deal with it anymore. My addiction was worse than I'd ever experienced instantly. It just was sitting there waiting. The darkness, I mean, it just instantly consumed me. I I woke up. I had no idea what had transpired the night before. There was no managing it or we can often tell ourselves a lot of different things to excuse that behavior. You know, eight years, oh, surely I can, you know, get a grasp on it this time. No. Nope, it took me down. And so that was in November of 2015. Fast forward, my husband at the time, he and I absolutely could not drink together. Uh, we were we were alcoholics, and we just stepped right into that chaos, and we drug our kids through it. And by the following summer, the boys would be removed temporarily from our custody. They would go and stay with my mom. I say temporarily, um, but it would end up being two years before I would fully have them back. I struggle with saying that God took everything, but I, I do believe that I lost everything. And in that moment that God stripped me completely bare of anything that I thought that mattered. Every single thing that I put in front of recovery and in front of God, I lost. And that was everything. I mean, it was going to church on Sunday was not enough to keep me in a space where I didn't want to escape. I didn't think about what would Jesus do. I thought about what Jessica wanted to do. Mm. Thought about all my hurt and all my pain. What was familiar? What was my vice? What was the enemy going to use to get a hold of me once more? When he saw that opportunity, yep. as he's always looking for that opportunity. And where I had spent years wholeheartedly trying to help my husband at the time, mm -hmm. instantly I turned on him and I didn't care if he stayed sober because I didn't want to stay sober. Mm. Like how hypocritical. I mean, I had preached and prayed and motivated and, and then instantly once I was back in that sinful nature, his sobriety mattered nothing to me. I was already in it. I was in self-will run riot. So my, I would lose my children. I would try to work a case plan. You asked me directly, what did the judge say? We were transferred from Putnam County to Douglas County as a mother. There is no other moment that can even encompass the level of pain that came with losing my children, with hurting and harming and 
subjecting my children to a life that I had fought so hard to get out of. I mean, I was sober long before I even ever had children. That's part of the story, too. You know, God being in the midst and all that time that he protected me from creating a child in that chaos. But like I told you, from the very beginning, I remember laying hands on on my sons, praying over them. Um, Leighton would be hospitalized with RSV and pneumonia in his first year. And I just remember someone pouring into me that I had the authority to lay hands on my kids. Someone pouring into me that if you fast for your child. And so the first three years of Leighton's life on his birthday, I would fast for 24 hours learning what, what that meant. Here I am in this moment where I don't have my children. I'm, I can't see them. I can't speak to them. And I know without a doubt that God was answering my motherly prayers. He was protecting my children from me. He listened to me. Mm. You know, did I ever think that they would need to be protected from me? Absolutely not. Is it hard for me to even utter those words today? Absolutely but what became my prayer very early on was I asked God to show whoever needed to see it because it changed constantly, whether it was my mother or the judge. But I would just say out loud, God, please reveal the true intentions of my heart despite any of my past actions. It was the only way I could start forgiving myself, and it was the only way I could release some of that shame and that guilt, and it was the only way that I could find the power to start fighting for myself, for my sobriety, for my sanity, and for my children. They put every roadblock you could think of. I mean, their requirements were stiff. They were not playing. They were not going to put those children back in our care, period. Even though we were sober, we were still acting crazy. Every time me and my mama would get in an argument, that showed them the chaos that was still our environment, you know. And so it had to be reconciliation among us all. They challenged their dad and I to enter into a parenting plan and agree on it. We disliked so much, I couldn't imagine him being with the kids and he couldn't imagine the kids being with me. They said, if y'all keep working against each other, you're going to work each other right out of this courtroom mm -hmm. without your children. I had to tap into some forgiveness. I had to ask for his forgiveness. Judge Walker said to me, you may very, uh, man, her words. She had granted me overnight. I went and got drunk. I couldn't handle it. All I could do was run away from the way I was feeling about myself. I was so scared to have those kids back with me. And so the judge said that I was one of the worst cases of self-sabotaging that she had ever seen come through her courtroom, that I would get something good. I would work for it. I would let God do it. And then my self-worth and my self-loathing was so strong that, that I would do something to tamper with that. Because I didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe in what God was doing. And she said, it may very well be that I don't get them back. But after that, so I ended up in the midst of working a, a case, in the midst of going to meetings and therapy and claiming I was sober. I would go out um, on a rainy night in July of 2017. And in a full blackout, I would have 
my second DUI, that would be would be a car wreck where I almost took the life of two men. It is one of the most regretful actions is is the harm that I put other people's lives in under the influence. Um, and that's taken a lot of forgiveness, self-forgiveness as well. And, and again, you know, what would Jesus say to me if I was hanging on the cross with him? Um, and so I would get it, get the DUI and I would go before the judge and she would put me on no contact with my children and she would tell me to leave the county to not come back until I had something different to offer her. So we are going to put a pause right there and continue part two next Friday where we find out what happens after she ends up in a coma and what is so significant that is being built right where her accident happened. Here's what we get to look forward to. In September, I'm driving home and I stop on side of Bill Carruth where I had the wreck. God just reveals to me that I had crossed that white line. I mean, I literally crossed the white line that night and I almost took someone else's life. And how often do we cross the white line that God has set for us? Mm whether it be the white line around our personal space or our homes or our family or our children. The boundaries. The boundaries that are provided for us as protection within his promises. And then we cross those lines and we cross those boundaries and we break our relationship with Christ and we get further away and we feel responsible and then we're overwhelmed. And then the next thing you know, we have distanced ourselves from God because we crossed that white line the line never changed he never changes so part two continues next friday thank you so much for being a part of this trails and testimonies Subscribe, like, I guess that's it guys.